Well, I'm excited to be able to be with you all this morning. As you all know, we uh, started a series, Pastor Roger did last week, out of the book of Revelation. He did a great job, extremely clear, of doing an overview of the entire book, but also started with uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. And this morning, we had the privilege to talk about Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 20. So if you have your copy of God's Word, it'll be on the screen as well. But if you do have your copy of God's Word, I'd encourage you to open to Revelation chapter 1, verses 9, and we'll be studying this morning, <clears throat> verses 9 through 20. If you have your phone app, you can do that as well. I had the privilege to share with our students last Wednesday night, and I encourage them that if they're doing their personal quiet time, don't use their phone app. And the reason why is because you can still get texts and all kinds of distraction. Now, that says that comes from an ADHD guy that needs to be in a sealed, airtight, no-window, small, three-by-three three room with a hard copy, okay, uh, with nobody to get in. But, uh, but in this setting, just go right ahead because I'll do enough stuff up here twitching around and stuff that I'll distract you without uh, worrying about your texts and stuff like that. So Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 20. I'm going to jump right in here in just a moment in verse 9. We've got quite a bit of ground to cover, and I don't want to make you nervous by saying that, but, but need to jump right in. But I do want to give you a little bit of backstory on John. We know John is the human instrument that penned the book of Revelation. We know God is the author, amen? But here we are with the revelation of Jesus Christ is the name of this book, and John is a human instrument. Now, John is a very unique guy. God has used him to, to pen five books in the New Testament, the Gospel of John. So, you know, we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So that Gospel, fourth book in the New Testament, was written by John, human instrument-wise. God was the author. And then first, second, and third John, Pastor Norm led us through a series recently out of the book of First John. And then here we are, we find him in, in Revelation. But the Gospel of John is pretty interesting uh, for multiple reasons. But one of the reasons why is I think it gives us a great insight of the relationship that John had with Jesus. Because here's why. There are six times in the, in the Gospel of John that the words appear, the disciple whom Jesus loved. The disciple whom Jesus loved. I want that to resonate for a moment. Six different times that those words appear, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, one of those times, as a matter of fact, is found in John 21, 7. And it's the great time where what happens is, uh, this is right whenever Peter has uh, done the mountain slide from the three denials. And, and it's been, the, he's watched at a distance all the events of the crucifixion and has had the longest weekend of his life. And they're at the Sea of Tiberias. He and six other disciples, a total of seven of them, the Sea of Galilee. And they're fishing all night, caught nothing Jesus was off in the shore. They didn't know it was Jesus. They did not know it was Jesus. And he says, why don't you cast the net on the other side of the boat? They did so. And you know the story. They couldn't even pull the net in. There were so many fish in it. Even gave an account of how many fish they caught. And it says here, the disciple whom Jesus loved, listen to this. Therefore, verse 7 of, of John 21, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. Now, isn't it interesting that six times that phrase, that phrase appears, that disciple that Jesus loved. Who were they talking about all six times in the Gospel of John? It's the only Gospel where it appears where it says that disciple who Jesus loves. It was John speaking of himself. And that's where Peter puts on his outer garment, plunges into the sea, didn't wait for the boat to row ashore, just couldn't wait to see Jesus. And then there's that systematic three-step, and there's forgiveness and all that kind of stuff. It's a great story. It's not the sermon today. But I can tell you, the point is, I believe John was not conceited. But John had the best understanding, perhaps, of all the disciples, being the youngest of all of them, on top of that, of the love of Christ for him. The love of Christ for him. Now, here's the reason why we know he wasn't conceited. John was only the human instrument of the gospel of John. 
Who was the author? God. Who was saying, I want you to write, whatever you know, whatever you do, John, write these words, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Who was telling him to write that? It was God. And so John, I believe, after hearing that six times through that gospel, that God had used him to pen, he understood something, and that is on his best day and on his worst day, Jesus was head over heels in love with him. And I think that is so healthy. Because today, if we're not careful, we get caught in a trap of our view of God. And he's pretty angry in, in many people's view, okay? And he's a million miles away off in heaven somewhere. You might be able to connect with him, maybe, maybe not. But if you do, if you mess up, he's going to zap you, okay? We can get our, our, that idea of God whenever the most true definition of God is he's head over heels in love with you. He's head over heels in love with me. On the days I cannot even love me, he loves me. And if we could get a glimpse this morning of God's heartbeat for each of us, it would be revolutionary. Because he's head over heels in love. And that is what John has always understood. He's had probably the closest relationship, maybe, of all the disciples. It's just an incredible thing. But now, we're in the book of Revelation. And now, he's seeing Jesus differently. It's a revelation. It's revealing things that wasn't known before. And what he's realizing is this. He's realizing that Jesus, who came to this earth, is going to come back. And never again will somebody shove a crown of thorns over his brow. Never again will he be beaten with a cat of nine tails. Never again will men take him and put nails through his hands and feet. And for anybody that happens to think that Jesus is a pacifist sissy, whenever he comes back as king of kings, he's going to crush Satan's head under his heel because he is the Lord. And John is seeing this, still knows the love, still gets the love, still has that passionate love, but he is absolutely flabbergasted. He is astounded. And we see it in verse 9, because in verse 9, it starts out, I, John. Say I. Say I. John throws a, a demonstrative personal pronoun in front of his name. Now, this is the third time of four that John mentions in the book of Revelation that he is the human instrument. He's already mentioned it twice in the first handful of verses. But on this particular time, and the only time of the four, he throws in I, John. I mean, he is doubling down because he's so astounded in what he's getting ready to see. And he's so blown away. Again, this is not some kind of cocky, conceited statement. But what this is, he's not going, I, John. He's going, I, John. He goes on with the humility whenever it says, I, John, both your brother and your companion in tribulation. He's saying, I'm just one of you. And for whatever crazy reason, I get to write this. I'm nothing in this equation but the human instrument, but I get to see and write what Jesus instructed. And I've always had this incredible love relationship with him. But oh my word, the Jesus I'm looking at right now is absolute supreme. And I'm telling you, he is completely astounded. Listen to verse 9. I, John... Both your brother and your companion in, tribula in the tribulation and the kingdom of patience of Jesus Christ was on the island called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Roger did a great job mentioning this last week. This was like modern day Alcatraz. This was an island off the coast of Asia, several miles, where they would send prisoners. And John was sent there for nothing more other than preaching Jesus. But I'm telling you, John was being treated as exactly his culture viewed him as. And that is an absolute, full-on, 1,000% pagan. 
In their mind, John was an atheist. You say, well, wait a second. He identified as a Christian. Yeah, he identified as a Christian, but they said his God doesn't exist. We know who he claims, and that's Jesus, and we believe he was here. We crucified him, but his God doesn't exist. And they looked at him as if he was nothing more than a full-on pagan, that he was an atheist, and they have him exiled on probably what was a work camp kind of island. He's in his 90s. I don't know how many times they might have beaten him still trying to get work out of him. I don't know. But this was a brutal situation that we find him in. And he's out there because he's exiled for the cause of Christ. So he's saying, guys, I, John, why in the world? I don't get it. I'm just one of you. But this is what God is allowing me to do or is asking me to do. And again, he is only the human instrument. Only the human instrument. Verse 10, listen to what it says. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. So I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. What does that mean? I believe what it's saying is simply this. John was in the spirit, and it's it's exactly what we've already made reference to. John is the human instrument, but who is the author? Jesus. And I'm telling you, so God is the one that's writing this book. He's the author. And John is in the spirit. In other words, he's hearing what God is saying. Write this down. And he is so in the spirit that no error can sneak in. Nothing can sneak in. He is being, everything's being revealed to him from God himself. And the Bible has been preserved. And the Bible is without error. And the Bible is infallible. And multiple times you'll see where people have been in the spirit. But we know at least 40 times it happened because God used 40 different human instruments to pen these books of the Bible. And listen, they were in this place of hearing God in a very detailed, very pure way. Now, there could be some critics that would say, yeah, I mean, I know you guys say that. And just because it says he was in the spirit doesn't necessarily mean that. Well, I want to tell you, for the critic, I would say this. We've talked about it from this platform before. This book can be proven. This book can be proven. I mean, the manuscript evidence absolutely drowns any other secular book. It doesn't take the truth away from any other secular book, but it just smokes any other secular book with 6,000 Old Testament manuscripts, with over 24,000 New Testament manuscripts. Whenever the Iliad is the leading secular book with 643, that's an impressive number. But the Bible, I'm telling you, can be proven. The manuscript evidence is mind-blowing. The unity of the Bible is mind-blowing. But there's the prophecy-fulfilled evidence, and that is where astrophysicists have this number called the number of absurdity was 10 to the 50th power. 10 to the 50th power. They say if anything gets to 10 to the 50th power, it is absurd to think it happened by coincidence or accident. Absolutely absurd. There has to be a master plan. There has to be a designer. And what they have found is if just eight, just eight of the Old Testament prophecies were fulfilled in the New Testament, that it would surpass the number of absurdities. Just eight. Here's what that means. In the Old Testament, hundreds of years before, somebody would say this is going to happen. In the New Testament, hundreds of years later, it happened. If that happened eight times, it would pass the number of absurdity. No way it could be coincidence. Got to be some kind of designer that's put this together. Well, we have not eight, but 365 that were testified, prophesied about in the Old Testament, came to pass in the New Testament. And I'm telling you, this book can be proven. But we know that whenever it says, I'm in the Spirit, it means God is speaking. And it's pure. And He's writing. And it's preserved to this day. 
Listen to what it says. It goes on. Verse 10. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Now, what does that mean? There are two phrases that we often see. One, and they look very similar. As a matter of fact, in the, in the original language, they have mostly the same alphabet, same characters. One is the Lord's day, and one is the day of our Lord. The day of our Lord would speak to eschatology. We don't have time to talk about that this morning. It's not what this is saying. Some people want to kind of bleed that in. But the Lord's day is clearly the word that's used here, or the phrase that's used here. And let me tell you what the Lord's day is. The Lord's day simply means the first day of the week. It means Sunday. If you look at Acts chapter 20 and verse 7, you'll find out that Christians began to worship on the first day of the week. Now, the Judeans always had the Sabbath. On the seventh day, God rested, and that's what they would do. From sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday, they would rest. But after Jesus rose from the dead, because he rose from the dead on a Sunday, Christians in the book of Acts began, let's worship the resurrection on the Sunday. And that's what the first day of the week was always referred to, was on Sunday. So here's the simplicity of that verse. I was in the Spirit, God speaking, it's all Him, and it happens to be a Sunday. Okay? That's what that verse means. Now, I think there's some other things we can draw from there. I think it's pretty unique that we've got John who is beaten and exiled and lonely and all kinds of stuff out on this island by himself as an old man. And he still, I believe it even kind of signifies that he, he still sets Sunday apart. And he still recognizes the Spirit. He's not out there having a pity party. But we better understand that John was also with God on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday as well. Amen? I think there's something very special about setting Sunday apart. I do. But I believe that this verse primarily is saying, I was in the Spirit, God was doing the talking, I was doing the writing, and it happened to be a Sunday. Then it says, and I heard behind me a loud voice as a trumpet. Eighteen times in the book of Revelation, it talks about a loud voice. And every time it talks about a loud voice, a proclamation is getting ready to take place. So every time you see the words, a loud voice, listen up, pay attention, because there's a proclamation getting ready to happen. And the proclamation here is from Jesus himself. And listen to what that proclamation is. I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet, verse 11, saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. Can you imagine? He's never had a beginning or an end, ever. He's God. He's always been. He's always been. You talk about almighty and all-powerful. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see right in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia. And then he names them. Send it to Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamos and Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. So he's telling him to write everything that he sees in a book. And that word book translates into parchment. It's the best paper or best kind of thing that they had to be able to record things on back in that day. So he's literally physically writing something down to be able to give to these seven churches. And then those seven churches in Asia are listed. Here's the beautiful thing, kind of, okay? Over the next few weeks, we're going to look at each one of those letters one at a time. And some of them aren't pretty. Um, this, this is where John, again, is pretty flabbergasted because he's going, this Jesus, I'm the disciple who Jesus loved. But I'm telling you, he's got a judgment side of him as well. And he's got the bar set high for the church and in many ways, probably especially across North America, we've lowered the bar. And we're going to talk about it. There's going to be challenges and there's going to be times that I need to be on my face before God. And, and this, this particular message did the same thing to my heart as well. But man, Jesus is that God that loves, 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 loves. 
but he definitely is, is a judging God. Listen to what happens next. So here we are in verse 12, and it says, Then I turned to see the voice that spoke to me, and having turned, I saw the seven golden lampstands. So the first thing he notices are the seven churches. The seven golden lampstands are the seven churches. The fact that they were made out of gold tells us how precious the church is to Jesus. It was the most precious material to, to man at that time. And that's the words that he chose for John to write. And I want you to know the church is precious. And Jesus, the Bible says, is standing in, a, in the midst of, in the midst of those churches. The church is precious to God. Okay, so the first thing that he mentions are the churches. I want to tell you, in every generation, in every generation, about the time it seems like we hit about 17 to early 20s, there can kind of be this philosophy come about that says, I'm anti-institution. And every generation thinks they're the first one to think of it. Okay? My generation did the same thing. Those people in the room don't kid yourself, you did the same thing. It was pretty cool, very organic, okay, very philosophical, all right? The ones, you know, today, I'm anti. Listen, there's one institution we should never be anti because it's the institution of God, and that's the church. The church is not the way to heaven. Everybody say not. It's not the way to heaven, but it's a place where we come together and laugh together and cry together and grow together, and I'm telling you, it's God's bride, as imperfect as it can be because I'm a member here, it is the bride of Christ. And this institution is so important. The last two nights we had the privilege, uh, last two days, to be at the uh, Town and Country Fair in Washington. Our church was there sharing the gospel uh, with people at a booth. And multiple, several of you were there. And God bless you for that. And on uh, yesterday, uh, I had the privilege to be there last night. And, and uh, one of our summer missionaries, Rachel Smith, she had uh, gone and parked in the same mud hole that I had. Uh, our cars were sinking side by side, and so I decided uh, uh, we'd walk together to the front gate, and on the way, there was a man named Austin that we met, and the reason why I noticed him is because he was shoving about a half a dozen diapers in his cargo shorts pants, okay? And, uh, and I said to him, I said, you're a good dad. I said, I got five kids, and I remember the days, and I used to, and he said, well, let me tell you, if you don't mind, tell my wife that, uh, because he said, we were leaving the house, and uh, I said, we got everything? She said, yep, got everything. And we got all the way to the fair, and we had an explosion. And she said, oh, my word, I left all the diapers at home. So he said, I wasn't parked in this mud hole. I was parked in a mud hole that I had a shuttle to. So I shuttled over to the truck. I didn't want to go all the way out to uh, Marthasville where I live. So I went to a store and bought these, and I'm showing them. Now I'm parked over in your mud hole. And I said, okay, well, that's good. So anyhow, we're striking up a conversation on the way. And, uh, but here's what he said. I'll never forget. He said to Rachel and I, and we're kind of chiming in this conversation. He said, I feel like God is trying to reach out to me. He's a volunteer firefighter over in Marthasville, works in Washington, knows exactly where the ridge is. We invited him to come because he used to live in St. Clair and would drive to uh, AT to M to get over to work uh, for a couple different years, drove right by our campus. But he said, I feel like God's trying to reach out to me. And I said, well, tell me about that. And it's just different verses that would come to mind. It wasn't like he was going to write another chapter on the end of the book of Revelation. It wasn't anything weird. And I, and I said to him, I said, you know, Austin, that's, that's exactly what God's doing. And isn't it crazy that the creator of the heavens and the earth, the, the most high God, who spoke this whole world into existence in six short days. I didn't say all this, but I have to say now, a lot of people will say, really? And he, he didn't say this. 
do you really believe God created the earth in six days? I mean, how could he have done it that quick? That's not what confounds me. That's not what amazes me. What amazes me is that he held back and he allowed it to take six days. Or you know, you know what I'm saying? I mean, he could have done it instantly, but he's a God of perfect order. And anyhow, I said, you're exactly right. The God of the heavens and the earth wants to speak to you. That's how much he loves you. And we had this conversation, but he said on the way, I need to be involved in a church. And I'm telling you, Jesus puts priority on the church. Jesus puts priority. I mean, the first thing John sees are the seven golden lampstands. Not because the church is the way to heaven. Jesus is the way to heaven. It's not about being Baptist, Methodist, Catholic, Presbyterian. I'm a Christian with a capital C and a Baptist with a little b. It's about Jesus. But he still says the golden lampstand. And the Bible says in the next verse that he's in the midst of them. Listen to what it says in verse 13. And in the midst, say midst, say midst. I'm telling you, he is all over. In the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the son of man, clothed with a garment down to his feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. He starts to describe what Jesus looks like standing in the midst of the church. The first thing he mentions is a robe down to his feet. I want to tell you, it's a powerful analogy, and it's not an analogy, it's an absolute truth picture. And here's the reason why. Whenever you look at that word for robe, you'll find it in multiple places throughout the Old and New Testament. And listen where you find it. You find it mostly whenever it's describing the garment that a king would wear. Royalty always wore a robe all the way down to the feet. You'll find this same word whenever they talk about the kings of the Midian, King Jonathan, King Saul, King Ahab, King Jehoshaphat, and then six out of seven times it also is used, this same word for robe, whenever they're describing the garment of the high priest. And the gold sash, if you look in Exodus 28.4, it talks about the very same phrase, the gold sash that the high priest wears. This garment that he's wearing depicts the truth that he is the king of kings, but he's also the high priest. I mean, this garment is packed. It's incredible. And we know, I know this is Christianity 101, but we know what we mean by Jesus being our high priest. Back in the Old Testament, if you came into the temple, there'd be this area out here where all, of, all the common folks, the Judeans, could come and hang out. And then there was one special area, we'll just pretend like it's a stage area, that's called the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies was separated from the rest of the temple by this huge thick curtain that hung from the high ceiling to the floor from wall to wall. And one person and one person only could enter in behind the curtain into the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies is where God was. And the only person that could go in was the high priest. They would tie a rope around his leg because if he died back there, they couldn't even go in and get him. They'd have to drag him out. And so he would go back there. And what would happen is the high priest would get a word from God. And the big shot, if you would, would come out and tell all those little shots what God just said. That was the design. But remember what happened to the veil that separated the temple from the Holy of Holies? The moment Jesus closed his eyes in death, that veil ripped, not from floor to ceiling where some man could have done it, but from ceiling to floor and split and what it represented was this. No longer do we need to go to a man here on earth and say, will you do business with me for God? I want to confess my sins to you. That was done away with because we have a new high priest, one Jesus. He is the high priest. 
Now we talk to God 24-7, have total access to God through our high priest. Forgiveness and love and all these different things. It's why we often close our prayer something like this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Because we're going to the Father through the high priest, Jesus. And this depicts the king of kings, yet the high priest that he is. Then it continues on in the next verse, and it goes from clothes to his person. Let's look and see what his person looked like in verse 14. His head and hair were, like, were white like wool and white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. So the head and hair certainly ties it back to Daniel 7, 9, to a reference there. But the head and hair being white like wool and white like snow, it depicts holiness. It depicts the standard that God has for the church. And the bar is set high. Scripture says he is holy, so we should be holy. I'm telling you, the word white, the word that's used there also means bright. It means brilliant. It means, get this, blazing. And it talks about holy, holy, holy. The holiness, the truthfulness. No error can creep into this picture that he's seeing of Jesus because he is absolute truth. It talks about wisdom. And then it goes on to say, in the latter part of that verse, listen to it again, and his head and hair was white as wool and, and white as snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. What does that mean, the eyes being a flame of fire? His sight penetrates everything. Everything. Here's the deal. All the stuff that I think is my sin of secrets, he sees it. The sinful affections, he sees it. The stuff that every one of us, myself included, if we could show it on the big screen right here, we'd never want to show our face again. Nothing secret to him. His eyes are like fire. Nothing is hidden from him. He is holy, holy, holy. And his eyes see everything. Now I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the blood right now. I know we have people watching on a live stream and it would just kill me. It would break my heart if anybody in this room or anybody on a live stream heard this message and thought I was talking works. Like there's some balancing scales in heaven and if you do enough good, you might squeak into heaven. If you do too much bad, you're going to have to go to hell. There's only one thing we talk about around here all the time. Only one thing that gives us favor with God. That's the blood of Christ. The fact that Jesus came, died, and rose again. His blood is the only thing that gives us favor with God. Jesus here's what we know. We are all sinners. And sin separates us from God. God is so holy, so pure, so clean. And how else would he be? I mean, he's God. He's so incredibly clean. What I view as the least of my sin is so drastically different. It completely separates he and I. And so I have to go to hell in my strength. If Jesus said, I'm going to meet you halfway or even 99.999% of the way, I'd still be in trouble because one ounce, one speck, one iota of sin disqualifies me because he's so holy. We understand that, right? We can't, he can't even be around sin. He's God. So we need to be rescued 100% of the way. And he sent the rescuer, didn't he? His son, Jesus, born of a virgin, walked this earth 33 years, 100% God, yet 100% man. 
died on the cross, and the only thing big enough to cover my wicked sin is his blood. It's impossible for sins to be forgiven without bloodshed, the book of Hebrews says. And his blood, he was a perfect lamb of God, was shed and covered my sin. He rose from the dead on the third day, and when he did that, he defeated death and hell. And any one person, any man, woman, boy, or girl on this planet that comes before God, and as sincerely as they know how, says, God, I'm stuck, I'm helpless, I'm hopeless. Jesus, you are the one true God. The only thing big enough to cover my wicked sin is your blood. And I trust you, your death, your burial, your resurrection, your sacrifice as my way to heaven. I don't trust my strength, my goodness. I trust your strength and your goodness. Whenever we surrender to him, he will cover our past, our present, and our future sins. He looks at us through the blood of his son, and God from that moment on says, you're perfect. We know we're not perfect. But the whole issue of one speck of sin messing us up, he no longer sees the speck, or in my case, much more than a speck. We all ought to go to hell. But the only thing that gives us favor with God is if we've surrendered to Jesus is the blood of Christ. So this is not a works message, not by any stretch of the imagination. On your best day, he's head over heels in love with you. On your worst day, he's head over heels in love with you. On the days I cannot even love me, he still loves me. I'm telling you, he loves us. This is not some religious thing we're doing. This is a relationship thing we're doing. But John is seeing the exalted Christ, the holiness of Jesus, the judge. And there will be some judging. Not to see who goes to heaven and who goes to hell for those that are believers, but I'm telling you, he's getting ready to write, and we're going to start with that next week, seven letters to seven separate churches, and we're going to look at it one a week. We're going to see where we are. Some people say that it's kind of the, the lifeline of the church. I, I don't necessarily disagree with that, but I believe that all seven churches are alive and well in North America today. And, and there's something we're getting ready to talk about that ate my lunch all week. And there's going to be multiple times over these next letters that I'm going to go, oh boy, wish you wouldn't have said that one. But man, God, he loves his church. He loves his church. This is a strong word that he's sharing. Listen to what happens. So his eyes, he sees everything. He sees everything. Listen to what happens in verse 15. Verse 15, it says, his feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace. And then his voice the sound of many waters. So his feet. Ancient kings did a lot of judging. And their, their thrones were always elevated. And whenever they would judge, their thrones were elevated to the place that the man that they were judging, they were at best level with the king's feet. The only view that they had of the king were his shoes. And the, the picture of the shoes of the king, that was a picture of authority. The shoes. And this is simply saying... Whenever it talks about what he's wearing, what his feet are like. And by the way, with those feet, he's walking amongst the churches. But he is the king of kings. He is the ultimate judge. It is Jesus. Again, I got to say it. Nowhere ever in the history, or not in history, in the future, will Jesus be beaten again. Nowhere will he ever be driven to a cross. But he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And I'm telling you, you want to talk about the ultimate warrior, that's who Jesus is. And this is the Jesus that John is having revealed to him that he's writing down. His voice is like many waters, it says. Like many waters. Can you imagine how many nights John was sleeping on that, on that exiled island 
and a bad storm would hit, and from all sides, it wasn't that big of an island, he heard the waves just crashing into those rocks. He knew the signs. He knew the sounds of many waters. And what does that mean? What it means is, this is a voice of ultimate power. This is the voice of ultimate power, and he's getting ready to speak directly to the church. And it's, it's a way of setting people up to say, you better listen. I better listen. Then we move to verse 16. Listen to what it says. It says, and he, uh, uh, he had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. I want to back up to the first clause He had in his right hand seven stars. What does that mean? Well, let's look at verse 20. Because verse 20 is where he unpacks that. He says, The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand is the seven golden lamp and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the churches themselves. So the seven stars in the right hand are the angels of the seven churches. Now, what does that mean? Well, some people look at that and say it actually means the heavenly beings that God created, okay, and the ones that stayed with him and didn't follow Lucifer. But here's the problem with that. The problem with that is nowhere in Scripture do you see that angels are in leadership of the human church. The other bigger issue that many scholars have, and I would agree with this, although I'm not a scholar, but that's why I check out and see what the scholars say. Okay, I made a 2.015. So, but I can tell you, my roommate and I made a 4.0, okay, told you that before, combined, but anyhow, here we go, you still laugh at that, I appreciate the the pity laugh, so, but I can tell you that what many scholars say is this, how could it be the angels, because the angels, they have, these angels that stayed, they've never sinned, listen, they, they never, they don't need forgiveness, So what does it mean whenever it says angels? Well, there are two words used. And one is certainly the angels that we just described, the created beings created to worship God that have never sinned. But another word that's often used for angels, or at least in this case is used for angels, almost talks more about the attribute of an angel. And it would be more appropriately transliterated in English as the messenger. It's the messenger. So who are the messengers of those seven churches? It's the pastors. And so in his right hand, it's comforting to me to know that he's holding them in his right hand. Some, some uh, you know, theologians say maybe it was the seven guys that came to the island of Patmos to take this letter back to their churches. But he's got the pastors, and that's what those angels are. And then the seven lampstands, as we've already established, are the churches themselves. So let's move back to verse 16. And in his right hand, seven stars, and out of his mouth, a sharp two-edged sword. It's interesting to me that it's two-edged. And and let me tell you, Jesus has always been about protecting the bride of Christ from the enemy. He's always been about protecting the bride of Christ from enemies on the outside. But in this setting, he's got a second edge. Because we're getting ready to see in these seven letters that he's also protecting his bride because he loves the church so much because it's his from enemies on the inside. And there are some enemies on the inside, according to these letters. And we're going to see that. There were some great things that they were doing, but I have this against you. You've left your first love. All these different things that we're going to look about over these next few weeks. 
So he's got a two-edged sword that's coming from his mouth. And then I think this last part is so cool. In his countenance, verse 16, latter part, was like the sun shining in its strength. It's the, it's the most powerful phrase that they could use in a written language. It's one thing to say it's like staring at the sun. You ever done that? Okay, you can tell probably I'm not the brightest guy in the world. I've done it enough that you know, every once in a while and I go, wow, for the next 15 minutes I still see the spots. And I, you go, why would you do that? I don't know. But anyhow, it's not just like staring at the sun, but it's when it's at its strength. You can't even stare at it. That was his countenance. That was his power. That was his power. And then the thing that has really haunted me for the last couple days, verse 17. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. I believe this speaks of position. I believe John literally fell flat on his face before him. But I can tell you that I could lay on this carpet right now, flat on my face, as dead, motionless, and still entertain wicked thoughts. And still have compromise in my heart. It was more than position. The Bible says we are to die to self. Aren't you thankful for the blood, by the way? Have we talked about that? It's the only thing that gives us favor with God. The blood of Jesus. Thank God or I'd go to hell. But I'm telling you... I need to kill some things that are compromised in my life. Because if you lay before someone truly is dead, none of that's going on either. And John laid before him as dead. And the question that I need to ask me, and I've been asking myself over the last day or so, and that I'd encourage you to ask yourself, is what is it that we need to die to? What is it that we need to die to? Now here's the beauty of it. The beauty of it is the grace, the blood is still there. Listen to what happens. And, I, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But Jesus laid his right hand on me and said to me, do not be afraid. You realize sometime whenever you get home, I want to encourage you to read Matthew 17, especially around verse 7. Because John was familiar with this right hand touch. And let me tell you what I mean. On the Mount of Transfiguration... Jesus appears, and Moses and Elijah are there, and Jesus loved all the disciples, including Judas, but there were three that he often took into a little separate area and poured an extra measure into, and that was Peter, James, and John. And Peter, James, and John were at the Mount of Transfiguration, and Moses and Elijah appear, and they say, should we just build three tabernacles and just stay here? And Jesus reached out with his right hand and put it on their shoulders and said, don't be afraid. It's a powerful thing to think. This is a, John knew that touch. But Jesus says to him, whenever he falls before him like a dead man, he says, do not be afraid. Listen to this. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives. Listen to this grace. And was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys to Hades and death. Those are synonymous. And there's separation from God. And the word keys simply means authority. He has the authority of all that. And then he goes on to say to John, Write the things which you have seen, and the things which you are, and the things which will take place after this. And then he says in verse 20, as we described a little bit ago, By the way, the, right, the stars and the lampstands, 
Here's what they mean. But as we close this morning, I got to ask you this. I got to ask me this. I'm going to leave you out of it. You do what you need to do. I just know what this preacher needs to do. I need to ask God, what am I holding on to that I need to die to? How many times am I going to say, it'll be my last time. I won't do it again tomorrow. How many times will I say, well, 98% of my life, I don't do that. And look, we're never going to be perfect. Everybody say blood. Aren't you thankful? Okay. But I'm telling you, what is it that we need to die for? Or die to? To die to self. To bring honor and glory to Him. Because this thing we're doing is not a religion. This thing we're doing is all about a relationship. It is all about honoring someone, a God, the one true God, that is this God that says, I will not give up on you, and I will not let you go. It's all about dying to self, because the more of a servant we become to Jesus, the more freedom we have in our life. Remember that John was exiled on this island because he was viewed as an atheist. If there's ever a time for us to die, if there's ever a time for us to really full-on embrace as a church who God has called us to be, it's now. Now, here's the reason why. First and foremost, and please hear this, because He is worthy. Amen? He's worthy. But second to that, we have a culture that is soon going to be saying, and many already are, you guys are pagan. You're atheist. Well, hey, we identify as Christian. Yeah, we do. But the thing is this. If they don't believe that our God exists, then we're atheists. I've told you, I think, some of this before. But whenever we were last November in a precious country in, in, uh, in West Africa, and the governor of that area, he and I still email each other quite a bit. And he's praying for me every day. You know why? Because he doesn't want me to go to hell because I'm a Christian. He loves me. And I'm praying for him every day. Because I don't want him to go to hell. He's Muslim. And I love him. But isn't it ironic of why he's praying for me? And again, it, we, we've become friends. But whenever we ended our trip, we went out to this island off the west coast of Africa. And it's where slaves way back when were sent to be sold to either Europe, North America, or South America. And families were put in these dungeons, and children were sent to one continent, and husbands to another, and wives to another. They were split up to never see each other. It was horrible. Even walking through those dungeons, it was just one of the most dark, you know, oppressed areas that I've ever been in in my life. And they would say, meanwhile, the Europeans were above us, and they were dancing, and they were drinking, and there was this hole cut out. And every once in a while, somebody would bring a virgin right underneath the hole, and they would drop a rope, tie her up, and drag her up through, do all kinds of things to her, and drop her back. And then this tour guide would say, if he said it once, he said it at least 20 times, and then the next day they would go to the church and pray. And how could they do this? And what he was saying was this. Those Christians, because that's what they identified as, listen, it had nothing to do with Christ. You can walk around with a golden cross on the end of a stick and persecute people and torture people. That is not Christianity. Never has been. Never will be. Every place that the gospel goes, women are exalted. No longer are there four wives. 
No longer are they property. We've watched the transition take place over a 10-year process where women are cherished and precious and loved by a husband and the only one wife. Because that's what Jesus does. That's what Christianity does. But see, in many religions around the world, they look at us as nothing more than pagan because that has been their experience. How could they go and pray? I didn't say this to be argumentative, not at all. And he didn't take it as argumentative. He answered calmly, but I said, can I ask you a question? I mean, it's, it's unimaginable that those people would buy those precious people and take them. But who was selling them? Who brought them to this island? Well, it was the Muslim leaders from that continent. The point is this. All people are wicked. All of us are in need of a Savior. All of us. And Jesus is the one that will meet us 100% of the way. And change our lives. And it's only by His power. But there is a day coming, and I don't like saying this because I have five kids. I have two a son-in-law and a daughter-in-law that's every bit of a kid as any of my other kids. I got a new daughter-in-law coming November 11th. We love her. We got a grandbaby now. I don't want persecution to come to North America. But I'm afraid regardless, it's headed this way. I will say this, the fastest growing church in the world today is in Iran. The church is healthier and more alive and well than it's ever been in the history of the world, worldwide. It's just missing a couple continents, and we're one of them. And every time persecution hits, the church is purged, and they reach more people than ever before. I just don't want to see it happen that way. I'd rather see a good old-fashioned spiritual awakening. Amen? I believe God still can. But I'm telling you, if there's ever a time for us to be the church and for me to cut the compromise it's now first and foremost because he's worthy amen it's what it's always about always about but secondly because our culture pretty soon is going to be just like John be in exile because he was a full on pagan he was an atheist in their mind and that's what's coming our way so what is it that we need to cut. I was in Houston, Texas. We, uh, we were knocking on about 12 different apartment complexes, going door to door because we were doing a vacation Bible school and other types of ministry with the church there that we had the privilege to be able to partner with there for a while. And, and uh, it was the highest concentration of Muslims. And again, listen, these are people created in God's image. They're precious people. They need Jesus just like us. Uh, not all Muslims are dogmatic and you know, just like they think that Christians are all the people that were on that island. Man, I've got some sweet friends that are, that are Muslim. And they are peaceful, loving people. But we all need Jesus. But in this area, it was the highest concentration. The largest mosque in Houston, Texas was there in that region. And those apartments were filled full of Muslim people. And the management would say, we're not against you but we can't let you come in and pass out anything that has anything to do with Jesus because it's about our bottom line and we will have people that will leave and they're good renters. And while I was being turned down at about the 10th apartment complex, Jehovah's Witnesses were walking by going door to door handing out Watchtower. Now here's what that told me. There's only two sides. There's Jesus and there's Satan. 
Satan didn't care who got in there as long as they weren't preaching Jesus. Didn't matter. And it's heading our way like a flood. We don't have to freak out about that because you know who Jesus is? John is astounded with who he is. And we know how it all ends. But I'm telling you, if there's ever a time to say, God, what do I need to drop? What do I need to die, die to? Because if, if John laid before him as if dead, I need to die. And it's more than a position. It's a heart. It's a mind. It's a relationship.